When I was 16, I was plastered on a sofa in my father's hospital room. He had just emerged from a heart operation. His doctor walks in, looks at me, slumped, and says, Young man, sit up. It's impolite for you to be slumped when a doctor enters into the room. And despite my general orientation not to be a great follower of instructions, I instantly did what he asked and did not open my mouth. The doctor was a demigod as far as I was concerned, with all the power over life and death. And I'm sure this demigod experience is what many of us feel when we are dealing with doctors and have a health problem. They are the ones with the knowledge. They're the ones who could save our life. They're the ones who could cure us. And with that comes both fear and respect, as well as a complete subservience. So when the doctor prescribes medicine A, B, or C, we just go off and take it. When they ask us to come in for a checkup, we just go in for the checkup. When they want to operate, we turn up like sheep. When they come after an operation to explain to us what happens, even though they're cryptic, never say much, and always leave you gasping to ask more questions, we just generally shut up. And we save the questions for the next time the demigod may choose to turn up in the hospital room. And this demigod aura is the same inside the hospital between the doctor and the hospital management. Very few hospitals there disagree with what scalpel or gas or mask or machine a particular doctor wants to use. They basically don't dare just like us. So then, how do you get a healthcare sector which is responsible for a fantastically immense amount of waste and 5 to 7% of global emissions, with the US, unsurprisingly, at 8.5%, whereas the OECD, or rich country average, is at about 5%. So how do you get that sector to decarbonize when everybody's so afraid to even talk to the doctors, let alone tell them what they might consider doing? But tackling emissions and waste from the healthcare sector is a must. Remember the context we're trying to cut emissions and waste because of an existential problem, climate change, and its derivatives, biodiversity destruction, ocean pollution, deforestation, and so on. And climate change, of course, therefore, poses a profound risk to human health, which is very much what we've entrusted doctors 
to help us with. It's without question the greatest global health threat of this century, and probably the next one, and the one after that. And the impacts of climate change are, as you know, all over the place. Everything from extreme heat, which in turn leads to congestive heart failure and kidney disease, so on, to storms and flooding, which disrupt essential healthcare services, which directly injure us, which lead to diarrhoal disease and the breakdown of sanitation systems. Climate change impacts also include the spread of infectious diseases with, for example, spikes in vector-borne diseases such as dengue fever in Southeast Asia, and that now moving south down to Australia, for example, to air pollution from burning all those fossil fuels. So climate change is a profound risk to human health. And so what are we doing and what are we going to do about decarbonizing the healthcare sector and convincing that sector to manage its waste responsibly? Welcome to episode 78 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy podcast with me, Asad Razouk. I am so happy you're here. Thank you. So let's start top down. Globally, if you will, the decarbonization of the healthcare sector is coordinated under, you guessed it, the World Health Organization that launched at COP26, the climate summit in November 2021, something called the COP26 Health Program. COP26, you may remember, was in Glasgow, and even though looking back, the UK government, still in power, evidently wasn't as serious as they pretended to be then about fighting back against climate change. This, the COP26 health program, which I don't remember reading or hearing much about, was actually quite a consequential accomplishment. And so what then happened is governments focused on the implementation of this COP26 health program and Recently, something was set up which is called, not helpfully, the Alliance for Transformative Action on Climate and Health, or ATTACH, in short. And so what ATTACH does, according to its own words, is it works to realize the ambition set at COP26 to build climate-resilient and sustainable health systems using the collective power of WHO member states and other stakeholders to drive this agenda forward at pace. So, staying a bit longer with that top-down approach for a second, there's now about 60 countries from all over the world that are committed to developing a sustainable, low-carbon health system. 
So that's a health system which is decarbonizing and responsibly managing waste. And there's even 22 countries which have set a specific date to reach net zero from that sector. But remember, healthcare is complicated because the state of play in high-income countries can be extremely different from that in poorer countries. If you're a doctor worrying about electricity because you need it to keep the fridge on, you aren't going to have much time for decarbonizing. And so the approach takes into account the fact that rich countries and less rich countries have very different approaches to this issue. So what are we talking about? First of all, emissions, as I said already. The healthcare sector is 5 to 7% of global emissions. That makes it about the fifth largest polluter in the world if it were a country, number five. But in addition to that carbon footprint, the healthcare sector generates a fantastically big amount of waste, at least 15%, one five of which is hazardous. So it can be infectious, it can be toxic, or it can even be radioactive. I'll give you a very simple example. Every year, there are 16 billion injections that are administered worldwide. But as I'm sure you can already guess, not all the needles and uh, syringes are properly disposed of afterwards. And we don't know where half of them are. We then burn some of them or we incinerate some of them. And the incineration of healthcare waste can, in some cases, give us some pretty bad gases that then make their way through the air into your lung and mine. And I don't know if you can picture this, but basically rich countries generate about a kilo of hazardous waste per hospital bed every two days. So order of magnitude, there's about a million hospital beds at least in the United States. So that's a thousand tons of hazardous waste from the healthcare sector in the United States every two days. Now, in poorer countries, it takes about five days to get to that kilo, and clearly that's logical. But nonetheless, that also adds up to an enormous amount of hazardous waste. And that's just hazardous waste, which, remember, is only 15% of the total waste from that sector. And I don't even want to start thinking about that waste, to be honest, in detail. Because just imagine the microorganisms and all the other stuff, drug-resistant microbes that are just spreading from our own health facilities into our own environment and affecting everything, air, water, animals, plants, fish, you name it. And so luckily, there is now a serious effort to do something about all this. If you then focus on decarbonization specifically, and if I were to overgeneralize, and I'll put some source material 
in the notes of this podcast episode. The actual hospital building and the waste are about 15% of the carbon footprint of the sector. Then you've got travel, that's patients, staff, visitors, at about 20%. Asthma inhalers and anesthetics are another 5%, with other medicine at about 20%. Then you've got medical devices at 10%, and the rest is what you buy into a hospital. So food and office supplies and what have you. So you can see how this fits into the broader picture of decarbonization. Because the clean energy transformation, for example, is going to clean up some of those emissions from hospitals. But we also need low-carbon prescribing if we can ever get there. And these are mandates for low-carbon products where the manufacturers start paying attention to packaging, logistics, and recycling, and where you put the responsibility or a shared responsibility at the very least on the manufacturers for recycling. And then you've got recycling of medical devices as well, which would be a great help because it can keep materials in use at the highest value. Interestingly, shifting from hospital-centric care to community-based healthcare outlets is also a driver of decreasing carbon footprint. Just because a small healthcare facility in a community tends to be, frankly, more responsible. Hospitals also can use energy much more efficiently, starting with LED lighting and lighting controls. They can also do more to encourage healthy eating. They can move to electric vehicles. Doctors can promote telehealth more so that you are cared for effectively through a video call while you're at home and only come in when you need to. So there's a lot that we can do to address that carbon footprint. Now, there's a few hotspots for intervention that people are starting to focus on. And I'm going to give you just three examples to develop the previous point. So the first one is anesthetics and inhalers, which, as I said before, are about 5% of emissions because they contain a certain type of gas, which no longer exist in other sectors because they were phased out in the 90s. I don't know how many of you are interested, but one of the most polluting anesthetic gases is called desflurane. And just one bottle of that desflurane has the equivalent warming of 440 kilos of coal. Luckily, there's now safe and clinically preferable even alternatives that are not cheaper. And so this is about implementing those changes. But as I said at the very beginning of the podcast, given the demigod status of doctors, even within their own hospital, they have to make that change. It's going to be very difficult to force them to. And so it's all about the approach to get them to do that. Then as another example of hotspots for intervention, you've got 
the issue of recycling and circularity, particularly in high-value items, which are medical devices. And these medical devices, partly because they're very complex, do lend themselves to being reused and recycled. It's just that more focus has to be put on that issue. And the third and final example I'm going to give you of a hotspot for intervention is care closer to home, so the telemedicine. But it's not just telemedicine. It's also community care, and it's also primary prevention. So the more we can do in those areas, the more you're shrinking both carbon footprint and waste in the healthcare sector. Remember, transport alone is 20% of healthcare emissions, for example. And the good news in the healthcare sector is you can actually take action on something like 80% of the emissions from that sector without the need for significant investments. As a matter of fact, on things like moving to clean energy, energy efficiency, electric vehicles, and related topics, you would be saving money. And interestingly, the healthcare industry is actually behind getting this done, even though this is a relatively new effort. So we only have data from the UK on this, or at least I only have data from the UK on this. But 92% of the British national health systems, 1.4 million staff, are supportive of reducing emissions and weight from the system. And what I like about this push to decarbonize the healthcare sector and cut down its waste is that you've got some amazing people that have committed themselves to make a difference in it. I'll give you an example. I'm taping this episode from Singapore. Right here in Singapore, out of the NUS Medical School, something was recently set up called the Center for Sustainable Medicine. This is under the leadership of Professor Chong Yapseng, the dean of the NUS Medical School, who then convinced Nick Watts, who until recently was chief sustainability officer of the British NHS, to come and run that center. And I came across their work by coincidence. But then I hadn't focused before on the healthcare sector, and so they made me want to look into it in a lot more detail. And so that Center for Sustainable Medicine at NUS in Singapore, as an example of what these centers do around the world, first fulfills a function of communication and information vis-a-vis -vis the doctors, right? Because they want to give them clinically relevant evidence to doctors, to hospital administrators on low-carbon healthcare. And this is critically important because if you don't convince the doctors, it's not going to happen. The center will also, second, try and build into the training of new doctors this knowledge and skill that you need to provide, or rather continue to provide, high-quality care, but in a world impacted by climate change and therefore where these issues become far more important. And then the third thing the center will do is support government and industry with 
healthcare decarbonization strategies, I mean, that's like almost acting like a think tank, basically. Now, there's a very, very small number of initiatives like this actually on the ground, implemented with funding that are doing what the NUS Center for Sustainable Medicine is doing. But encouragingly, there are more and more that are coming up. You can, I hope, see that the health sector has an absolute responsibility to take climate action and to tackle its waste. But I think you can also see that it's beginning to take it seriously and that those efforts are encouragingly spreading around the world. I want to close by going back to this issue that healthcare systems in rich countries and in poorer countries have very different dynamics. So low- and middle-income countries will have tiny per capita carbon footprints and very small spending. But their environmental intensity, so to speak, can be quite large if, for example, they're entirely powered by diesel engines, which is often the case in poorer countries. We just can't expect them to focus on waste and carbon footprint with the same intensity than richer countries. So I and others would like to see OECD countries vastly reducing their carbon footprint and waste while providing more guidance to low- and middle-income countries and their healthcare sectors on these issues. And I'm going to give you some amazing statistics so that you get a sense of what I mean. 60% of healthcare facilities in poorer countries do not have reliable electric power, right? And it's incredibly difficult to talk to a doctor under stress because he doesn't know if the medicines he's got stored in his fridge actually are going to stay cool or if he doesn't know whether his medical device is going to be powered by electricity when he needs it to perform an operation. And this issue of insufficient power limits access to lighting, ventilation, water, refrigeration, functioning diagnostic and treatment equipment, and so on. And clearly, it's got horrible consequences for patients. Here is some data from Uganda, for example. A study of emergency obstetric care in Uganda found that only 2% of primary health centers, 29% of referral health centers, and 61% of hospitals that provided obstetric care had reliable electricity. So... That's 2% of the health center near your house, 29% of the health center where they then send you, and 61% of the bigger hospitals of which there aren't that many. So that means that people were unacceptably dying, suffering high mortality from things like uterine rupture, hemorrhage, and other complications of childbirth. So you can see what they need to focus on. 
more reliable electricity would go a long way to saving lives. And that, as you've heard me say so many times before, has not come from fossil fuels that left over a billion people like these underserved in terms of electricity, but has to come and will come from distributed renewable energy. And so scaling up our efforts there are also critical for the healthcare sector. And here's another set of statistics. A survey of surgeons across 40 countries in Africa showed that half of them, so half these surgeons in 40 countries, reported at least weekly power failures. And 40% had experienced compromised surgical field lighting, so they couldn't see clearly. 32% reported delayed or canceled surgery as a result. And 29% operated only using the light from their mobile phone and that of their nurse. And now we've got climate change, which is a multiplier of all these problems, coming into the mix. So you can see how in poor countries, actually, the overwhelming priority is reliable electricity from clean sources. You've got to just bypass fossil fuels because they haven't delivered for 200 years. And you've got to bypass conventional electrical grids and you have to move to solar, wind, and batteries. Why? It's affordable, it's practical, and it can be implemented right now. And here's an example from India. Between 2008 and 2015, Maharashtra, the Indian state, installed about 400 hybrid solar systems, mostly in their remote healthcare facilities. And that led to a vast improvement in the quality of care. And all this to say that the emphasis in cutting the carbon footprint and waste of the healthcare sector must be shouldered by wealthier countries. Because what will then happen is the poorer countries will benefit automatically, assuming they've been powered by clean energy in the meantime, as efforts are put by richer countries and their hospitals and their doctors on supply chains to decarbonize the entire system. And so as we pressure these manufacturers and suppliers to improve the efficiency and the carbon footprint of their products, that will reach the rest of the world. And the same goes for recycling and reuse. As these practices become embedded in richer country hospitals, the practice will migrate elsewhere around the world. Thank you so much for listening to this episode 78 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy podcast with me, Asad Rizouk. Have a great couple of weeks.